The Jewish views on how to keep kosher in 2016. Find out what the latest annual food guide from the London Beth Din tells us. The race is on, a new lottery grant aimed at helping to preserve the memories of Jews from the First World War. And is the community too sensitive? The high street store scarf that looks like a tallet is pulled from the shelves. First, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. Fabian Hamilton, Labour's new shadow foreign affairs minister, has pledged to continue standing up for Israel within the Labour Party. He said boycotting Israel without taking action against other countries is anti-Semitic. Mr Hamilton, who represents Leeds Northeast, is the second Jewish pro-Israel MP to be promoted by the Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn. He said that he and the shadow foreign secretary, Hilary Benn, are on the same page regarding the two-state solution. The high street clothes retailer H&M has apologised for any offence after Jewish shoppers raised awareness about the sale of a white scarf with black stripes, which closely resembles a tallit or Jewish prayer shawl. The Swedish retail chain said the item will no longer be sold in Israel, adding, we're truly sorry if we've offended anyone. The new London Beth Din annual kosher food guide includes more healthy options and more choices for those with allergies. The 2016 issue has new products from specialist lines such as Dove Farms gluten-free cakes and Eat Reels crisps and snacks. It comes as new figures show that the average family had to fork out thousands of pounds extra per year to eat kosher products, while in restaurants it costs up to 70% more to eat kosher meals. Jewish heritage experts have said they're racing against time to collect second-generation First World War stories after the community was awarded more than £400,000 for a project to commemorate London Jewry's involvement. The grant from the Heritage Lottery Fund is for a digital project called We Were There Too and will lead to an interactive archive and website recording the experience and contribution of British Jews from 1914 through to 1919. In Hollywood, a Hungarian film about a prisoner at Auschwitz who's forced to help the Nazis with cremating bodies has won the Golden Globe for Best Foreign Film. Son of Saul tells the story of how the man comes across a body he believes is that of his son and becomes obsessed with finding a rabbi to give him a proper burial. The much-praised film has won other awards as well. That's the news. Now here's Andrew Sherwood with a look at the sport. Thanks, Vivian. Wickham Wanderers defender Joe Jacobson believes the League Two side can cause an FA Cup upset when they take on Aston Villa in their FA Cup third-round replay on Tuesday night. The former Maccabi GB Sportsperson of the Year converted a second-half penalty in the side's one-all draw at the weekend and says the side will go to Villa Park confident that they can claim an unlikely result. Three of the four Seoul Annexton Cup quarter-finals were played at the weekend as North London Raiders A, FC Team A and Oakwood A all booked their place in the last four of the competition. This week's fixtures include third-round ties in the Peter Morrison Cup, two of the top three sides in Division 1 are in league action, while Scrab will continue their pursuit of a 100% winning season in Division 2, Boca Juniors standing in their way of an 18th straight win. And finally, Moran Samuel has been named Female Athlete of the Year at the Israeli Paralympic Committee's annual awards ceremony. The 33-year-old para rower won gold in the women's AS single skulls at the 2015 World Rowing Championships in September, and in the same month was also named International Paralympic Committee Athlete of the Month, as well as being crowned the International Rowing Association's Sportswoman of the Year. 
Thank you, Andrew. Well, welcome to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your edition of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me is editor Richard Ferrer. So, Rich, let's start off, I suppose, with the front page, shall we? Front page, again, very focused on Parisian Jews and their plight. What's that about? Yeah, the plight of the French Jewish community, once again, I can't believe I'm saying it and we're talking about it again, has been brought into sharp focus with not one but four individual incidents, at least four that we know about. On the one hand, you had a politician that was stabbed in his home in Paris. You had a young person stabbed with a machete in Marseille. People in Marseille suggesting now that they, you shouldn't go out with a kippot on your head, which is an appalling situation for any Jew who wants to wear a kippot on his head or uh, to, uh, to be in. And Nicolas Sarkozy in London this week saying that we didn't defeat the Germans 70 years ago only to force the Jews to flee in the 21st century. So all these things coming together makes us makes us wonder, you know, it's another week from hell. What can the French Jewish community do? What can Hollande and his government do? When will the next disaster strike? And I think the other problem is as well is whether or not has this actually been going on without us realising and now it's only just come to the surface because for a lot of, I think, French Jews, it's been widely associated that the French Jewish community have quite a rough time of it, generally speaking, in comparison to other European countries. I know certainly for many years on Jewish radio I've been speaking about that I've, I've discovered that that to be the case. But I don't know whether or not this is just highlighting maybe what we already knew or whether or not it genuinely has taken a turn for the worse. Well, I think it's a massive shock to the Jewish community who are very pluralistic, very integrated, part and parcel of French society for, for decades and have never had any problem, certainly not on this scale. I think in the last year or so, uh, there's certainly been a sh- huge shock to their system that's been reflected in the amount of people that have been leaving the country. The, the Obviously, Aliyah is now uh, an all-time high. I think Netanya is the number one port of call for French Jews. I think one in eight people in Netanya now are of French descent. So it's only going to get worse unless this is taken in hand. But quite who has the policy to do so remains a a huge mystery and a massive uh, issue of concern, both to the Jewish community here and of course in France. Yeah, yes, again, it seems to be the story that keeps on giving, doesn't it? Uh, What other stories are going to keep on giving us this week? This week saw the annual meeting of the uh, leaders of the Jewish community with David Cameron at Downing Street, organised by the JLC, the Jewish Leadership Council. Interesting conversation. The top line we took in the paper was how uh, David Cameron wants to mark and celebrate the 100th anniversary of the Balfour Declaration with the Jewish community in 2017. The declaration that 30 years later gave birth to the Jewish state. It's going to be a very big moment for the community here and it's great that the Prime Minister wants to share that one with us. Lots of other issues, of course, perhaps of a less light nature that he uh, discussed, including, of course, security here. Campus extremism was certainly something they discussed. And on a positive note, he emphasised, and we touched on it just earlier, how the British Jewish community is an example of integration. And perhaps of all the minorities in Britain, they set an example in terms of how you can both be British and true to your own cultural roots. And what's quite nice as well about someone such as David Cameron I don't think that anyone can truthfully say there's ever been a moment, certainly during his time as Prime Minister, or if not actually as the leader of Conservative parties, where he's ever given, I would say, a suggestion that he is anything other than pro the Jewish community or pro all religions. So that must come sort of some way as a comfort to the community, knowing that the Prime Minister of this country is not going to run the risk 
of similar instances happening as we've been seeing in France. We've never had it so good. I mean, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown were great friends and allies of the Jewish community. But I don't think it's putting too fine a point on it to say David Cameron perhaps trumps them all. Not only David Cameron, but his chancellor, the mayor of London, Michael Gove. Uh, You could rally off many, many senior Tories who, who get it. They just understand what the Jewish community is about, the contribution that they give to British society, the constant threats that Israel is under and how it has to justify its existence and fight for its life like no other democracy has to on a daily, if not hourly basis. They get it in a reassuring way. So it's very gratifying to know that he is in number 10 and uh, whoever takes over in four years time or so, whether it's Osborne or Johnson or whoever else, I'm sure will follow suit. Oh, we certainly live in hope that that will be the case. Now, from one side of the house to the other, Labour has had a bit of a reshuffle recently. It's been widely publicised and we have a new shadow foreign minister. Yep, shadow foreign minister Fabian Hamilton just uh, stepped into the limelight as one of Corbyn's key colleagues. And we have a very interesting interview with him this week, particularly on the subject of boycotts. Now, the the, the quote that really stood out for me was he said, you can target China, target Russia, target Burma, target any other despotic Arab dictatorship that you want to and target Israel and that really that, that's legitimate but just targeting Israel that is anti-semitic that was pretty clear and concise terminology for somebody who has been handpicked by Jeremy Corbyn a man who wouldn't even bring himself to say Israel at a friends of Israel event it'll be interesting a to see what influence he can bring to bear on the senior members of the Labour shadow cabinet around him, and B, quite how Jeremy Corbyn might react to that sort of position. Very refreshing, just what we needed to hear, and certainly a breath of fresh air in terms of the Corbyn-led Labour Party and also the Miliband-led Labour Party. I didn't hear those sort of words coming out of the Labour Party between 2010 and 2015. So, yeah, very interesting interview. It's on page three of this week's paper, and I suggest you read it. Well, with any luck, hopefully that will go some way to clearing up any doubts that some members of the community might have as far as Labour's stance on Israel is concerned. Yes, as you were saying, that Jeremy Corbyn didn't necessarily mention the word Israel at his speech at the Friends of Israel conference that he was at. But that doesn't mean to say that he has ever categorically stated that he is in favour or against the Jewish state. And hopefully now this goes some way to showing people that not only the current political party in power, but also the opposition, hopefully, is going some way to demonstrate that they too are also in favour of the Jewish state. Okay, that's all we've got time for to look through the paper for this week. But thank you very much to Richard there. Don't forget that you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can read the e-paper online at jewishnews.co.uk. The latest edition of the Kosher Food Guide has been released for this year, and there have been some surprising yet pleasant additions to it, including more in the way of health-conscious foods and a helping hand to those with intolerances such as wheat and dairy. I've been speaking to Rabbi Jeremy Conway, Director of Kashrut Division London, Beth Din, and I started by asking him to remind us exactly what the guide is for those who may have missed it. The wonderful thing about the Really Jewish Food Guide, and I think it's almost unique in the sense that I don't think they have a similar thing even in the huge 
American Jewish community or, or in Israel is here we have a guide to regular products available in supermarkets and stores across the country. We're not talking about products which were specifically made for the Jewish market and have a kosher symbol on them necessarily, but we're investigating what the average Jewish person has available in their local corner shop or their local supermarket and advising them, is it kosher, is it non-kosher, is it perhaps dairy unexpectedly, or can we know that it's definitely parav, which means, of course, non-dairy. So although... Obviously, most people will have an understanding of what kosher is and what makes something kosher or not. What are the requirements, as far as the KLBD is concerned, to make it into the guide? What rules do they have to pass? (laughs) The first criteria for getting in the guide, actually, because people often ask us, what decides how a product gets in the guide or doesn't get in there. Obviously, there are tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of products available on on the shelves. We're investigating the products which are popular, and we know they're popular because people are asking us about them. So we have, for example, a, a fabulous Facebook site, which I, I'd encourage our listeners to, to, to take a look at, with over 6,000 members now. And they're talking about kosher the whole time, and they're asking us, what about this product, what about that? We're investigating the products that people want to know about. What do we investigate? Well, the first thing is, of course, that there's nothing there of animal origin. And one would be amazed, even in this day and age, with the horrors of mad cow disease and goodness knows what else, there are not so rarely ingredients which could be of animal origin. And then, of course, in Jewish tradition, according to kosher law, not all fish are kosher either. Only fish which have fins and scales, only certain types of scales indeed. Stenoid and and, and cycloid for those uh, experts of ours who, who listen, scales which come off easily off the fish. So we're investigating that there's nothing which would make the product non-kosher, which essentially is anything of animal origin. Secondly, anything of uh, non-kosher fish origin. Even items of wine and cheese have special kosher regulations, and we would ensure in a regular product that there's nothing of wine or grape origin in the product. And, of course, we can't have meat and milk mixed together. And another great principle in kosher law is that of shared use of equipment. Anybody who runs a kosher kitchen knows that we have separate equipment, crockery, cutlery, pots and pans for milky, and separate equipment for, for, for meaty. And, of course, for Pesach, people have uh, new sets as well. And that's because, according to halacha, according to Jewish law, equipment is considered to absorb a little bit of the flavor and let the flavor out again into the next product that's made. And therefore, we check also shared use of equipment. Okay, so take someone like me, for example, who I have to confess, I don't necessarily keep kosher, but I keep within boundaries that would be respectable to our religion that I would not obviously eat tray for anything like that. But is there much of a demand for this? Only because I would imagine that for someone who actually keeps strictly kosher, I can't imagine that they'd go into an everyday supermarket. They wouldn't necessarily want to buy everyday products. They'd want to go into their local kosher supermarket, wouldn't they? Surprising though it may seem, the majority of the Jewish population do not live in Golders Green, even though we've got quite a high population there. So not everybody has a kosher shop easily available to them. And it's extraordinary how you do find Jews everywhere, even Jews who want to keep kosher in, 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 what should I say, I don't know, Exeter or Edinburgh or even Aberdeen. And that's why the guide is absolutely essential facet of Jewish life. We're listing here over eight and a half thousand products. That's a thousand more than we did last year. So it's a real bumper edition this time. And I think it's 990 new products. We realize nowadays, especially all the, all the scares, horse meat and such like, ha- ha- has helped us in the sense that people realize you can't assume anymore you know what's in a product. Indeed, although 
according to the labelling regulations, most ingredients should be listed there. But there are things called processing aids. For example, at home, when you put some margarine on the pan before you bake a, a cake so that it won't stick, in every factory they use release agents. And they may be using a, a, a fat, which is of animal origin, or fish origin, or may have something of dairy in there, and that doesn't have to be declared at all. So if one wants to keep kosher properly, I would say the guide is an essential of Jewish life. After the Siddha, maybe the Chumash, the next, the next book you need on your shelves is the guide. <laughs> that's, that's the trilogy, is it? <laughs> Absolutely. The truth is, nowadays, we have also a, um, a, a website. We have a fabulous new website as of the last year or so, Is It Kosher? Dot UK. Is so it people can actually put in and you products can get and have all a look this, there, yes, can they? It's a search engine. You can get all the information of the products absolutely free of charge. So we don't sell as many guides as we used to, although you will find one in many, many Jewish homes. And obviously the kosher authorities and the people who work for them, the shomrim at the restaurants and the uh, shul administrators and the rabbis, everybody wants a hard copy. But the basic information is available now thanks to the United Synagogue sponsoring this project. It's available free of charge on Is It Kosher? UK. Well, we'll ask you for that website again in just a moment's time. But there was a report that was out quite recently that suggested that those who wish to keep kosher end up paying considerably more than those in the community who don't. Could that be a worry that people are going to be put off keeping kosher if that's the case? It, um, it's definitely a worry. And that's precisely the reason that we produce this guide and why we're so excited about the fact that we have, I think, 10,000 hits a week on this Is It Kosher dot UK site and so many people are using the guide because these products are available at the same price as all the vast majority of them. These are normal products which people are asking us about and we're investigating. This is not like in the old days when a small Jewish company are producing an ice cream specially for the Jewish market. And it's more expensive, of course, not because of the supervision, but of course, just of the logistics of getting the ingredients and using a factory for a small batch of product, which is going out to such a small consumer population. These products, which are produced in the million for the millions, are regular prices. And that's why the work we're doing here for the Really Jewish Food Guide is so important. Now, in an ever-changing world where people's dietary requirements become different and people recognise that they may be having tolerances towards certain types of ingredients. How has the guide adapted to maybe incorporate some people who say might be gluten intolerant? I'm so pleased you asked me that question, actually, because if you would have said, what is the one thing in which this guide differs or improves upon the previous guides? It is on the special dietary requirements which people have. We now have in this guide six pages of gluten-free products, 140 more products than we had last year, and also dairy-free, those people who are lactose intolerant. This is a, this is a huge area. We've got 90 new dairy-free products in here. I'm amazed when I look at the list myself. There are yogurts, dairy-free, cheese, dairy-free, milks, coconut milk and such like. Confectionery is extremely important, chocolate. So we're really making a big effort. There's so many people who, who, it's, who, who, are, who have special dietary needs of one sort or another. I don't know whether the Jewish population have more than other people, but it's something we're try, trying very hard to address. I'm guessing that the guide is obviously an ever-developing item it's not necessarily something that you start from scratch every single year when you put it together mm. but how is all the information gathered who does the groundwork to go in to actually check these products how are they tested how can you confirm that these products definitely have earned a place in the guide this is actually a, a, a very s substantial project we have three people 
sitting investigating products during the years. You rightly say the fact that we investigated it and listed it last year, most of these products don't have an official hersha. That means they're not tied up. Actually, there are 2,000 products. I've made great strides in recent years. Everybody says I went to America. Everything on the shelves has an, has an OU or a Circle K, these different kosher symbols. Why don't we have more of that here? We've been making great strides in recent years. There are over 2,000 products available out there in the market which have which bear a little KLBD and a kosher certified. The advantage of that is that means there's a legal contract. And once they've given us the information, they have to stick to it. Or if they need to change a supplier, which would be significant, they have to notify us who they're changing to and check with us that that's okay. But for the other 6,000 products we're listing here, we don't have that kind of absolute guarantee. So we have to keep in regular contact with them. And if we want more products, then that's more work, apart from updating the old ones. So I have a team of three people who are in contact with the companies. They have to build up a relationship because they're not obliged to give us any information. They have to know the information will be kept strictly confidential. And we're asking sometimes for quite detailed information, like who is the supplier of your vegetable fat? We don't want a fat which is coming even for, from a refinery which produces animal fat, tallow, on the same equipment. So we're asking some quite detailed, quite confidential information which most manufacturers across the country are happy to give us and share with us in strict confidence. Sometimes we sign a confidentiality agreement. We're asking for information on the ingredients. Any processing aids I mentioned before, like a release agent or an anti-foam and various different things which could be used, an enzyme. Or, and we're asking them about shared use of equipment. And we have a database which records all this and prompts us to update the information on a regular basis. Just finally, if someone wants to get a hold of a copy, a hard copy of the guide, where do they go? How do they obtain it? Okay, the guide is available in all good Jewish bookstores. Of course, most of the food, uh, kosher food stores also sell a guide. So um, they're encouraging people to uh, shop not only with them, but to shop in the supermarkets as well, once you know what, what you can buy and what you can't. And of course, they can, they can buy it via the United Synagogue and via our website, kosher.org.uk, or as I say, via the United Synagogue. Rabbi Jeremy Conway, director of the Kashrut Division, London Beth Din. If you would like more information or would like to obtain a copy of the guide, then you can go to the KLBD website, klbdkosher.org. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive, Adam and Kate will be joined by broadcaster Penelope Solomon. They'll be discussing the sensitivity of the community as a whole. Plus, Clive will be speaking to Neil Martin, the CEO of Jewish Lads and Girls Brigade, about an heritage lottery grant that has been set aside to gather stories of families of those affected by World War I. Now, Ros Burwald is an author based in northwest London. She's been writing for most of her life, and one of her works, Shot to Death with Pearls, has recently been republished. However, Ros's talents don't end there. She's also an illustrator, silk painter, and she also happens to be one of the few female book collectors in the country. I know, I didn't realise it was a niche hobby either. Well, that's just some of Roz's strings on her bow. Entertainment reporter Kate Fulton has been finding out more about the great lady and has been speaking to Roz herself. She started by asking her to tell us a little more about her book collection. Oh, the books I've always collected since the children were little. And I once went into a bookshop near the British Museum and the lady barred the door. She said, we don't sell to ladies. Uh, my 
my old books. And I said, well, I happen to be one lady book collector. She said, my goodness, you must be the only lady book collector I know of. There are five others. So that was quite unique. And what type of books do you collect? I collect poetry, children's illustrated books, and modern illustrated books. Also boys' adventure books, Cormorant Crag, Sailing at Sea. I love a bit of adventure. Also some girls' books and murder mysteries. And amongst the murder mysteries, I have detected, you very kindly showed me, I use the word detected, it was a Sherlock Holmes teeny tiny little book, which must be less than a centimetre wide. It is. And half a centimetre tall. And are you telling me that, that, that a story is written on that book? Absolutely. It's one of the smallest books you will see. I bought my majority of my books at the sale room, the very miniature ones, and they were collected by a very important collector, A.H.A. Horton Collection. But I don't mind what I buy. I buy off stalls in markets, and lately I buy particularly modern books. I go to a lot of modern bookshops. What sparked your interest? I think illustrations, because I love the drawings. Because you are an illustrator yourself. And I like to illustrate myself, try to call myself a painter. And I also paint silk. What sort of books do you illustrate? Well, I try to make... I've just done a whole series, Cinderella in New York, I call it, where it's this little girl on a sewing machine in the middle of New York. (laughs) Tell us a bit about your book, The Shot to Death with Pearls. When did you write it? What's it about? The quote is from a Jacobean thriller, I would call it, where there were two marvellous quotes, Duchess of Malfi. I would as lief have my throat cut with diamonds, which I thought would be a marvellous title, but I'd already shot her. So I had to go with Shot to Death with Pearls. Okay. And it's a murder mystery. It's a murder story. I shoveled in all the film quotes I like. So not only does the reader have to work out the film quotes, which the detectives throw at one another, but also the murders are done as an artistic picture. So the reader has to guess the painting. And you came to writing relatively late in life or have you always been a writer? No, I've always written. I have been very lucky with my short stories. The Lady magazine has published all my short stories and one year there was a big competition which I won. It was about my books and I'd put Frank Sinatra next to Elizabeth Barrett Browning And the story was that she ran off with Frank Sinatra, the book, instead of Robert Browning. And it won the prize from the Lady magazine. It was exciting. I won £1,000. But it was the thrill of winning. And what happened with the Lady is it was taken over by another editor. And she fired everybody that liked my short stories. Unfortunately. But do you still write short stories? Yes, I am. And they also published my poetry, which was wonderful. And do you enjoy 
the artistic side, the drawing, the illustration more, or do you prefer the writing? Lately, I think I prefer the writing. I do go to two art groups. I go to, I've been going for 30 years, which is a long time to Stamos Synagogue, which have a lovely art group in the afternoon, just for a few hours. It's delightful. And I go on Thursday to the Hampstead School of Art for silk painting, which I love. Were you from an artistic background? Yes, the family were in antiques. My father was... My husband was an antique collector and my daughters are artistic. My son's artistic. He's in the antique business as well. Chinese porcelain. And I think my mother was a very great reader. And if somebody wants to read your books and see your illustration, how do they get hold of a copy? Well, they have to ask Waterstones. It's on Amazon as well. Well, we look forward to reading them then. Thank you very much, Ros. Author, artist, illustrator and book collector Ros Burwald there speaking to Kate Fulton. If you'd like more information about Ros's book, Shot to Death with Pearls, then you can always search online and it should come up. If you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can always contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish Views or on Twitter. We are at Jewish Views UK. Now, although there aren't many people alive, if any, who would remember the effects of World War One, there are obviously descendants of those who did. And Jewish heritage experts are calling it a race against time to collect stories from that era after the community was awarded £408,000 for a project to commemorate London Jewry's involvement. It's a joint effort involving a few different organisations, one of them being the Jewish Lads and Girls Brigade. Clive Roslin has been speaking to their CEO, Neil Martin, and he started by asking him to tell us exactly who is involved in the project. It's led by the um, LJCC and a variety of other organisations of which JOGB is one of the partners and now the lead strategic partner. And it involves all the organisations that have had some kind of connection to World War One, because we go back over 100 years as organisations and still continue today. So from the Jewish Museum to Ajax to JOGB to Norwood to JFS, these organisations we know well today were actually there as well when the war took place. What are you trying to achieve with this? I think the the story and the Jewish contribution of the story to World War One isn't very well known. It's certainly less known in some cases because it's so much further away now than, than World War Two and the Holocaust. And the over-contribution, perhaps, that the Jewish community made to Britain at that time and the call for service and on the home front as well, how disproportionately they served Queen and country to help in a time of need to pay back, if one sense to what the Britain, how good Britain had been to the Jewish community at that time, and to dispel the myths that were out there then and are still there now that the the Jewish community doesn't pay its dues in that kind of way to support the country it's very proud to be part of. In what way don't they support it, or do the people say they don't support it? In the First World War and the Second World War, 
disproportionate numbers of Jewish people served, uh, 60,000 in, in World War II, I believe, for Queen and country and, and, and giving up. And, and as we do, not just in, in, in times of call of duty, but uh, across society in, in, in arts, education, science, how the Jewish community is really part of the fabric of British life, not just Jewish life. And to recognise that when looking back now 102 years since the end of the war and up to 2018, when we really mark the end of the First World War, how much of a role the Jewish community played? I can't help saying this. Aren't we doing this a bit too late? I mean, there are not many people, uh, there can't be anybody no, left no, now no. Who, no. who knows what was happening at the time. Well, uh, in, in theory, or in reality, nobody at all is alive now that fought in the First World War. It's, it's, too, it's too long ago. And that's part of the, of the issue. And it's a, it's a wider society thing as well in commemorating and then understanding more and more the, the decisions that were made then about the First World War and what we need to remember now and, and our own contributions about what we made, what our great-grandparents made in many cases along the way. And the, our own our own heritage and family tree projects about not recognising what our own families did 100 years ago. How, in fact, can we get to that? I mean, is it written down? Is there anywhere you can go and find it? I mean, how, how do you get to that? Sure, I think from, from the broader project perspective, and I'll speak about JGB in a second, there are loads of families in their attics and lofts that have got war medals, marriage and birth and death certificates and, and a variety of, of, of things and ration books and things that go back numerous years for different things that have happened in society that, that have not been collated together. Digital technology allows us to do those things as well. There are places in the East End of London that aren't Jewish communities anymore but have sites and things that happened and schools that are still there that aren't Jewish denomination anymore as they used to be but other people that want to research certain things. So when young people are researching World War One from where who lived in their street. The stories are Jewish stories, but, but 100 years later, from a JOGB perspective, the JOGB was affiliated to the cadet forces at the start of World War I, and 535 of its members and leaders didn't return. So there's, there's, a, there's a story, and the same is true with JFS at the school and with Nord and others. There's a, there's a lineage and a link in terms of understanding what our own organisation and people that, that contribute to it have been part of that has not been necessarily archived as best as it could be, or indeed now linked together to paint a picture of all these people that were involved in these organisations to see what was happening and the social history of British Jewry in 1914 to 1918 and beyond and what the, what the consequences were after the war. Nonetheless, I can't help wondering, how can we be really confident in the accuracy of the information gathered if this is all second generation or even third generation sure. stories? I think some of that is is a difficulty. There's going to be a whole series of historians from a whole range of expertise working on this project to make sure that the central accuracy is there. But this project is much more about building individual profiles of people, young people and families researching an individual and looking at their life then specifically. So that's bringing in school archives, bringing in JOGB archives, bringing in family archives, scanning of digital things and medals that have been passed down, etc., to paint a picture of understanding what was there and to see what the contribution was. But obviously, 100 years later, it's, a, it's not as easy as it is, people are running around frantically now as they should be for the Second World War and for Holocaust survivors to capture that while we still can. But this is 
This is years earlier than that, and a, and a problem in one sense. But there's there's a lot out there, and there are and there are minutes of meetings of things from the board of deputies to other organisations of of the time then, and and United Synagogue organisations of what were the what were people thinking at that time? All the all those archives exist, but they're not necessarily collated together in a way that this is an opportunity to preserve and restore what we have got and try and link it together in a way that to sew that narrative together to find out and and piece together. We've we've discovered within JOGB some things recently that we didn't know we had because we haven't had the opportunity to really digitise our archives until now and hopefully with this project further that's unanswering or answering questions we didn't know previously. Link those things together digitally with other people's archives and I think interactive we can piece a much bigger picture together we didn't have before. Can you just some of the things that you have been able to collect so far? Thanks to a group of volunteers way back when the names of all these people that were went off to fight were kept and collated, and those that that were sadly killed were not only collected, but certain things were were kept together. And then by linking that, for example, now to the Commonwealth War Graves website, we've been able to take our data and link out and work out where they were exactly killed and what happened, where they're buried, and it's and it's fascinating from people that served as far afield as Canada and Australia, people that are buried in Jerusalem that died fighting in World War One, etc., and the spread of where people were sent and what happened and who they were affiliated to and which regiments, etc. It's a huge tapestry of, of things that can be delved into in numerous ways and then also then linking that to the other many genealogy sites to say well where did who were their parents where did they live which street did they grow up in the east end for example which school did they go to who did they marry how many of them came back with war injuries how did they like who's around now etc the possibilities are endless to create something about individual people to build a story of what was going on. What about the medals that they received and things like that? Sure. The plan, as I understand it, is and already happening because there's been a series of pilot events in the last few months building up to the lottery saying yes to this uh, this, uh, very exciting project, that people have been saying they've got all kinds of archives and coming forward with stuff. So there's part of the uh, project will include 3D digital scanning where medals and, and a variety of, as one of the LGCC members say, they'll accept anything other than live hand grenades, that they'll take anything that people that people have and will be so when you go on this website to research, there'll be a series of centralized toolkits and things. So you'll be able to see what some of the Victoria Cross medals look like. And there were two two JLB members it was then that were all in the Victoria Cross and all those things to not only see and feel what they look like in one sense, but also to understand what they were ordered for, who got them, and everything because of digitalization will be hyper so that you can, in a non-linear way, move through the story in the way that you, you want to. So you know they are absolutely genuine. Oh, yes. Yeah. So we, we've got several people, and we've got a JWB, etc. We've got an Ajax. have got numerous artefacts that are have been passed down through the generations. And it's not there's never really been a call for World War I-related stuff in recent times, so we know that things are going to come forward. And many of these service medals are traceable back to the original regiments and archives of the military. So in terms of things that are being mentioned in dispatches or in terms of who was awarded what, it can be worked out as being genuine in that, so we can trace it back if, if need be. If someone listening to this now wants to help and maybe has something they can contribute to the gathering, how do they get involved and where should they, where should they go? There'll be more announcements, as I understand it, to, to follow and the, the the site itself will be launched in late May, June, in terms of the bigger building of stuff, because obviously the announcement of this project has just been approved by the Lottery Heritage Foundation, so it's been a long working progress. So there's a series, there's a build stage to go through now, so later in the year, and then working up to 2018, it'll be happening. But there is a website of 
Jews FWW.London that will be available soon for and a contact number to be able to get involved specifically. Right, thank you very much. Well, just can I ask you just, uh, not, this is not quite anything to do with that, but just sure. out of interest, why is it the Jewish Lads and Girls Brigade, mm-hmm. not the Jewish Lads and Lasses Brigade? That's a very interesting question, and I suppose I'm far too young in, in one sense to have been there at the time, but the obviously started the Jewish Lads Brigade because the issue of the day were the the boys or the lads running around and needing support. The girls weren't excluded. They were actually doing, through gymnastic societies, were doing fine. And I suspect because of the girls' brigade and the church girls' brigade had used the girls, we followed suit in terms of sister organisation, in terms of having the Jewish girls' brigade in 1963 and becoming the JLGB in 1974. So I suspect because the lads of other organisations were lads and then had girls we probably followed suit and mirrored what was going on in the other uniform youth ah, groups. Right. Well, Neil Martin, thank you very much My indeed. Pleasure. And I wish you every, every success with the whole thing. Thank you very much. Neil Martin, the chief executive of Jewish Lads and Girls Brigade, telling me how the community can do its part to preserve the stories of Jews involved in World War I. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Adam Bradley, Kate Fulton and me today is broadcaster Penelope Solomon. The subject for this edition is based on a scarf that's been the focus of some controversy this week. High street chain H&M stocked a product that was predominantly white with black stripes in a pattern that was claimed by some of their Jewish shoppers to look like a tallit. The Swedish retail chain said the item will no longer be sold in Israel, adding, We are truly sorry if we have offended anyone with this piece. Everyone is welcome at H&M, and we never take a religious or political stand. But this does beg the question, are we, as a community, too quick to go accusing people of anti-Semitism when it might not be there in the first place. Kate, what do you think? Okay, well, normally I've got a lot of opinions on this, but I'm, I'm quite split, I'm quite divided. You see, on the one hand, it was insensitive. I'm sure it wasn't deliberate. And by the way, I have seen a picture of it and it does look just like a talus, but it wasn't deliberate. I've seen, for example, pyjamas. I can't remember who made them, and it's not relevant, which was striped and really did look like, God forbid, you know, Auschwitz survivor, what they were, what they were wearing in the camps. And that really was stupid. They really did look... I mean, you know, everybody knows the boy in the striped pyjamas. And those I was much more offended by. This, I feel, is more of an error. And therefore, to some extent... Oh, just sort of roll your eyes. Nobody's going to be putting talus makers out of business. Well, this isn't. For women, anyway. Let it go. So I'm I'm less concerned. I don't feel that we should have been making such a point about anti-Semitism. I don't feel it is. What do you think, Ben Nerby? First of all, I'm absolutely astounded by this. Not wishing to offend anyone, but to me, this is utterly ridiculous. You could go and look at everything and make some kind of connection with a Jewish artefact or some sort of religious garment or item or anything, wherever you go. I mean, or any, for that matter, any other religious 
piece of equipment, if you like. I mean, you know, there's enough to worry about. There is real anti-Semitism out there. And to start worrying about a scarf in a shop, I'm sorry, but please, whoever is writing this story needs to have a bit of a break. But Jews are, are, are very, very sensitive about this sort of thing. I mean, they think that everything is anti-Semitic. I mean, my mother and my late mother-in-law used to get very upset because she once saw a play on television in which the actors were talking Yiddish. It had a Jewish story to it. And she said, oh, how anti-Semitic of the BBC to broadcast in Yiddish. I mean, this is the way a number of Jews do think. Don't how you can agree, that be anti-Semitic? How could that be anti-Semitic? Well, I agree with you. To broadcast in Yiddish. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's a in, language. No, it clearly is. But this is a continuation of people's attitudes towards it. H&M made this scarf motivated by anti-Semitism and a political agenda. It's just ridiculous. I mean, they're motivated by profit, like any and other fashion. retail business. And fashion. They even said in their statement that stripes are in. So, you know, if they're going to do a scarf, it's always going to look a bit like a talus. A I bit have to tell you, I have seen it, and I have never seen such a talus. Yes, Penelope is I am holding us. up my scarf as we speak, Which because I've just realised like that the end bits could be considered to be talus. Like, no, you look have at this. to understand. They're very long and dangly, and it's cream, or it could be white. I mean, you know, it's well, a the scarf. F- the funny thing is, is I've seen it as well, obviously, and, and it does look quite like a talus. I, personally, I, I, I'm... You want to get I, I take it as a compliment. I really do. I actually, I've always quite liked the cream, thick tullis with the black stripes. The shiny blue stripes. Not, not well, okay. myself. Just... I think this is a great piece of art. Have you bought a said scarf? No, but I but must you, admit. It sounds I'm like you're going to. <laughs> I'm very tempted. Hey, but it could start a fashion and this could actually end up being quite positive for but Jewish I'll, people. I'll tell you something, though, in fact... H&M were invited to take part today, but they didn't reply. Can I just say, what would happen if we decided to have multicoloured hijabs? How would other religions feel? Or we decided to have a canonical hat that was that was suddenly became the fashion, you know, some sort of papal fashion statement. I just wonder whether there would be an outcry then. You know, how can you make a hijab, you know, an item of modesty? Maybe it could be seen by some as laughing at it. Well, I, I think that people are getting far too touchy about this kind of thing. Who has the right, any religion, any society, who has the right over an item of clothing, an, a fashion accessory? So, for example, Christians wear crosses, well, that's it. I, I, I can't wear anything that's got two lines crossing each other. Yeah, but it, nowadays, nowadays there was this famous story only a little, little while ago about some people who were very angry that they saw this woman, I think she was in a hospital sister, wearing her cross, and she was asked to take her cross off. That was at the at the airport, wasn't she? She was asked to take the cross off. It, it, you know, I mean, you could take it to such an extent that you, you'd, you'd say things like, you know, children weren't allowed to do maths in school because you have to make a cross sign. You know, I mean, it, well, it's exactly. nonsense. It, it's just, it, it seems to me absolute nonsense. And we need to be discussing the real issues here, not whether or not a scarf should be in a shop. We need to be talking about what the real concerns are. Well, what are the real issues, well, do you think? a question I ask myself a lot and wonder about is... Is it true that there actually is 
a rise in anti-Semitism in Britain today. There certainly are statistics that say that there, there is a rise in anti-Semitism in France, across Europe. Those are the concerns for me, not, not a scarf. And I'd really like to talk about that. But obviously, I don't want to necessarily steer the conversation away from what the subject but matter I think, is. I think that is the subject matter, though, Penelope. I, I think the problem is, what I see is that often the Jewish community has very misdirected complaints and issues. For example, this is ridiculous, in my opinion, this scarf. However, at football matches, you have crowds singing the Y word. I'm highly offended by that. Mm. So many Jews I know... Oh, it's nothing. It's just well, it's just the name of the football club. Well, it is then, just you know. the name of it's all of the. It is, but it's the connotations. The connotations of this scarf are: it's a scarf. Simple as that. It looks similar. The connotations of shouting that word. It is derogatory. I'm, it's used that, as a derogatory mm, term. Yeah. In yeah. that context as well. Well, in any context, it is a de- it's a derogatory Why? word for calling somebody saying that somebody's Jewish. Because opposition football teams sing it to them because they see it as a way of attacking Spurs. The fact that Tottenham Hotspur have got a lot of Jewish fans and they've actually taken it to their hearts and sort of used it as their own nickname. Sorry, but I'm not happy with but people the shouting fans, that The word. Jewish fans are quite happy about that. I... I'm Jewish. I'm a football fan, not of Tottenham. And I find it quite disgusting because if 30,000 people can shout it in a football stadium, then why can't they shout it in the street? What's the difference? I think we've got to a point today where people don't need to be subtle. You know, anti-Semitism is out there. Uh, You know, there's all sorts of ways of saying people, you know, want to attack or, uh, you know, attack Jewish people through from graffiti through to desecrating the grave through to killings and murders. I don't think people need to be subtle. And how many many non-Jews, frankly, how many non-Jews walking into H&M would would think, oh, that's that's a tallit that the Jews were. They wouldn't know that. Anymore, well, it's funny you should say that because I walked in to H&M and it was my birthday the other week and somebody bought me a scarf and it looked really, really does look like a tallit. Now, the one I've got isn't the, exactly the same as that one, but it's grey and it's, stri- it's white with grey and stripes and it really does. I haven't not wearing it actually but I did think to myself that's just like a talus hmm. so would you not wear it then because, well the fact is it's got red on it and it doesn't look enough like a talus but I would have felt uncomfortable possibly had she bought me the one with black stripes on would you wear it in shawl <laughs> that's such a good question it's funny everyone's saying though this scarf is like a talus it's not right this scarf looks like well hang on a second a talus looks like a scarf so really we, you know it's a chicken and egg thing surely we could then be saying, well, anything that has any resemblance to another item of clothing, if it's a similar colour, then it, it's it's heresy. You know, it's, Clothes uh, have got a peculiar significance. But if I wore a boots. pair of black silk pyjamas to bed... Let's not go there. Ooh, he's Adam. getting personal. <laughs> if um, I was to wear a pair of silk black pyjamas, am I then offending ninjas? Exactly. It's There's ridiculous. A fence. You can find a fence in anything exactly. and everything. Here's a question or a thought. Now, remind me what the little box with the prayer things are. The tefillin. That's it, the tefillin that you put around your head. So for anyone who doesn't know, let's not assume that everybody knows this. <laughs> the little leather box, and then you tie it around your head, and that's worn when you pray in the mornings. Right, in the mornings morning, for yeah. very religious Jewish people. Yeah. I, I recently saw that actually someone, I think, it, I think they posted it on um, Facebook, and there were about two or three pictures of this, of the tefillin, and it was actually a handbag. 
and it had Gosh, been made in the design in this I've design this. and i was just so and it was not. going round and again it's a similar thing isn't it you it's know flattery. it's flattery actually oh, you could flattery actually good point good point you could um <laughs> be very pleased that you know these items are being I thought that the time the had gone. I, I thought the time had gone when people <clears throat> read in the newspaper that some criminal was had up in in the Old Bailey and was was sentenced to a hundred years in prison or something. And all the Jews would say, "Oh, it's terrible because he's a Jew and blah, 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 and it's going to cause so much anti-Semitism." It doesn't. It absolutely doesn't. And you were absolutely right, Penelope, when you said earlier that there are many more things that are much more important and that I don't know why the Jews are so sensitive about these things. Well, yeah, we, and we do need to address those more serious issues and find ways to to stop it, really. But, you know, that's difficult. It's, uh, you could suggest that this causes harm to the integration of Jews within the society. I agree. I the think, fact yeah. that we're complaining about this, again, the Jews moaning about something else, you know, I really think we should pick yeah. our fights wisely, mm. and I don't think we are at the moment. And what is there to complain about, in fact, if you really ha had anything to complain about, that outside synagogues now you have to have guards to make sure that no bad people are going to come along and do something awful. That's awful. Yeah. You know, that sort of thing is, is what people should be arguing about, not whether a scarf looks like a talit or yeah. a hat looks like something else. And also um, also outside schools, you know, security guards, Jewish schools, there might be one, there might have been one now that I've seen that there's local to where I live, there are now two security guards in high-vis jackets. And it's I find new, that though. very that worrying. Is... I, I do find that... You know, we've always had security in our Jewish schools, in our shores. We not have, to the extent no, that we have now. had to up it because it's of up. recent events. Well, that's what we're talking about. That's it's, really uh, scary. Exactly. That's really frightening. And you know, what, what do you do? Do you do you unidentify or pull away? Do you hide, or do you carry on living life as you've always lived it? If you do, uh, if you are quite visible as a Jewish person, you know, if you wear a kippah, should you carry on wearing it? And um, recently in France, there people have been told to actually not to wear them because they've been attacked purely on the grounds of being identified publicly as Jewish. That's really frightening. Well, I met a French person, a French Jew, who's come to live in this country. There are many French Jews come to live in this country because of anti-Semitism there, mm. who said that, in fact, this was happening in France now, that you didn't dare wear a kippah, a religious man didn't dare wear one, for the simple reason that he was scared he might be attacked. Well, an mm. American reporter actually walked through the streets of Paris for an afternoon wearing a kippah and it was quite telling how many comments the odd spit here and there towards him some offensive remarks made so sadly it is bad in France but I don't think we're at that stage in this country Hopefully and I not. don't think we should be bringing this kind of issue up anyway, onto ourselves that's uh, where we have to leave it sadly because our time is up but my thanks to our guest broadcaster Penelope Solomon and uh, please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us and you can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. Time now for our rabbinic thought for the week. And this time it comes from Rabbi James Barden from Share Tzedek, North London Reform Synagogue. 
I spent much of the December holiday break catching up on old copies of the National Geographic magazine. As I am not young, and I have been a subscriber all my adult life, I shouldn't say old copies, really, as I have copies from the 1980s on my shelves. I don't mean those. I mean issues from last year, 2015, which I hadn't got round to reading. To be exact, the magazine is the monthly periodical of the United States National Geographic Society, yet its readership has always had a global scope. My two grandfathers, very different men, neither of them American, were both subscribers. And now my own home here in London is full of decades of copies of the same publication. Yet the world it describes, of course, does not seem so vast and unknown to us today as when my grandparents were born and indeed the magazine itself was launched back in the late 19th century. But in many ways it is. One of the articles I've just read by mountaineer Mark Jenkins reported on a five-person expedition to Kakabo Razi, a peak on the border of Burma and China. As the author recorded, its actual elevation, around 19,000 feet, was unknown, not yet accurately fixed, and only one person, a noted Japanese climber who later died on Mount Everest, had ever succeeded in reaching the summit. Twenty years ago, that was. The expedition, in Mark Jenkins' account, was led by a woman, Hilary O'Neill. As I read, I noticed that the author mentioned a number of mountaineering colleagues, good friends of his, who had lost their lives in recent years on various other expeditions. Whilst I was drawn in by the traditional, adventurous, heroic nature of the undertaking, I also found myself again and again pondering the great Jewish ethical maxim, Pikuach nefesh doche et hashabat. That is, the protection of life must always override the Sabbath, namely the laws of Shabbat observance. Keeping Shabbat is very important in Judaism, at the very heart of Jewish life, so anything which literally pushes it aside must be even more important and more central. At just over 18,000 feet, the expedition leader, Hilary O'Neill, and another climber decided to halt. Jenkins describes her dismay and frustration very well. Three mountaineers, including Jenkins, forged on, traversing, as he says, a series of large rock spires, thousands of feet above the clouds. And then they, too, had to realize that they were facing a literal point of no return. And so they likewise stopped and turned back. After eloquently reminding us of his fierce desire to reach the summit, Jenkins concludes his account. All we want now is to get down alive. Alive. It's an infinitely moving moment and a great and honest statement. There is no pseudo-military language of victory or conquest. The mountain has not exacted a victory. The climbers have not failed to conquer it. Instead, the primacy of Pikuach Nefesh, caring for life itself, has been reasserted, but by the climbers themselves. And we still don't know the elevation of Kakabo Razi. Thank you to Rabbi James Barden from Sharai Tzedek, North London Reform Synagogue, with our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Rabbi Jeremy Conway, Ros Burwald and Neil Martin, also Penelope Solomon, who was on The Schmooze. And of course, thank you to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget to include the team, as well as our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg.
Now, it's at this stage I would like to say that the earlier discussion that you heard involving the H&M scarf, at the time of recording this programme, we had yet to have a response from H&M following our attempt to make contact with them. If anyone from the organisation would like to take part in future episodes of The Jewish Views and make your response, we're very happy for you to do that. You can always download the most recent editions of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk, and you can search for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.